I feel like the word innovation gets used a lot when we talk about healthcare. It's good because on one hand, it kind of captures a lot of broad topics, but I guess it's like anything. If it's overused or done flippantly, then it kind of loses a lot of its sheen or its meaning. And it's one thing to say that something is innovative in healthcare if it's new and novel, but there's probably more to it. And as we know, it's one thing to have an innovative idea or concept in healthcare, but what really matters is whether it's adopted and how it's executed, the making it happen part. Well, today on the show, I'm speaking with Wendy Chapman from the University of Melbourne, and in this episode, we'll explore innovation in healthcare, the adoption of innovative solutions and technology, and what data-driven care really looks like, and we look at standards and innovation, and a lot more things as well. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Wendy Chapman, who directs the Centre for Digital Transformation of Health at the University of Melbourne. Wendy works with health services to achieve data-driven practice change, implement innovation to support patient-partnered care and provide training to the workforce. Hey, Wendy, how are you going? I'm great. It's great to be here. It is good to have you on this show. There are a few people I feel like we need to speak to on this podcast. Otherwise, we can't say it's a podcast about health technology in Australia. So thank you for making the time and coming on the show today. Now, for those that don't know you, tell us a bit more about you and your background, please. Yes. Yeah, so I arrived in Australia two and a half years ago to direct this center. I'm from the US, as you can probably hear from my accent. And I got a PhD in the year 2000 in medical informatics from the University of Utah. University of Utah was one of the first places to be training in informatics and developing EMRs and decision support systems. And so in the 1950s and early 1960s, Homer Warner, who's one of the pioneers of informatics, created an electronic medical record that was implemented at LDS Hospital in the early 60s. And he did that to bring more knowledge to the point of care to support decision-making. The EMR was a support for the decision support systems that they were building. And so I got to train in that environment where they've been doing that for 50 or 60 years. And it, wow. it was a great experience. I came to informatics serendipitously because my background is linguistics and I had a minor in Chinese language. But my husband went into informatics and I learned about natural language processing. And so that's oh. what my research has been focused on until the near future. Very cool. I did not know that. And what a great experience to work in that environment where the EMR has been kind of in the forefront of mind for so long. That's something a little bit different, no doubt. Yes. Yeah. So in this episode, we're diving into some of the barriers to adopting technology in healthcare and some of those other points as well. So no doubt in your time through some of that background, you would have come across this topic a fair bit. Yes. And I think that's been what's driven the work that we're doing here at the University of Melbourne is the fact that there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of health apps. There are, like you said, lots of innovative ideas but very few of them, I mean, you can almost count them on your fingers, have been adopted in healthcare. 
And if you think about if you're developing a drug or a vaccine, there's a very clear pathway of how you get that to market and into people's hands. Everyone knows exactly what to do, what the regulations are, what needs to be measured. With digital health interventions, it's a mystery. It's like a big black hole. And you have to navigate all kinds of uncertainties and risks about fitting into the workflow, integrating with the EMR, government regulations, and whether you're in industry or in research or in government, it's not clear how to make it from a great idea to implementation and adoption. Mm. You mentioned this is some of the work that's going on at the university. Tell us a bit more about the work you're doing there. Yes. Yeah, so this is the gap that we're trying to bridge is that that translation gap into practice. And I, I think there's a, a really important role for research in innovation, and it really needs to be a partnership between clinicians, health services, industry, and researchers. Because like I said, with the apps, you know, very few of them are adopted. And that's often because very few of them provide the evidence that's really needed for healthcare to be able to adopt them. And so you need research to really test the interventions that you create and, you know, show that they actually make a difference. And that doesn't happen right now. So as a university, we're trying to figure out our role as partners in this big, complex space. And so when I think about, you know, founders or creators of innovative solutions in healthcare, a lot of the time it comes out of an issue that perhaps a clinician or someone in the thick of the problem kind of identifies, look, there's got to be a better way to do this and comes with the right intentions of saying, well, this makes sense. The way we're doing it right now, it could be done better or there's more information that we need. So technology will be built or something innovative will be done. And then it's kind of like you go behind the scenes and build something, but then bring it out to market and either the situation's changed or there's more information at hand and it kind of just doesn't land as effectively. And that's kind of feels like the difficult part, right? Is this where you're kind of then helping it bridge that gap a bit further? Yeah, that's an excellent example of that kind of clinical champion who sees that problem and has an idea of how to solve it. But they become these, what one of my previous mentors, Reed Gardner, used to say, Boy Scout projects, where you, mm. you, know, you create something, it's very small, and it works in your very small space. But if anything changes, if you get an EMR in the hospital, or somebody new comes in, it's just all over. We really need to help innovators navigate the complexities of getting a digital health innovation into the clinical healthcare setting. Yeah, yeah. So what does that look like? I mean, what are some of those things to think about and the, the steps you go through? All right. So the clinician is going to be thinking about the clinical value and how to bring that, you know, help the clinician's decision making. They're also going to be thinking about the workflow. The health service is going to be thinking about sustainability. It's going to be thinking about, does this integrate into other programs that we have? The industry is going to be thinking about how to get, you know, their tools to really support, bring cutting edge technology, because often it's people using technology from the 90s because that's mm. all they know about, because they're not partnering with the people who are really at, at that cutting edge. You really need to bring together that broad diversity of people to make this happen. And so we're developing something called the Digital Health Validatron. And this is an end-to-end -end platform that will help navigate those complexities. And so it brings together capabilities with different skill sets, infrastructure, and processes to help innovators develop, validate, and evaluate new innovations. Nice one. And so are there people going through that, the Validatron now? It's a program, did you say? It's a kind of a platform and we're just building yeah. it up. So right now the projects that we have, 
are mainly grant funded projects, but they're, you know, research. And as we do these research projects, we're building up this infrastructure. And so what it looks at are things like the workflow. How can the innovation best Mm. fit into the existing care processes? The information flow in terms of person to person. So how does it really support the communication between the patient and the clinician or between the clinician and other clinicians and the usability of the help? You know, is it usable? Is it going to perform the way that it's expected to? How can you, you know, use it to really influence behavior? And then the all important question that we all know about is really what's the feasible payment model? for this innovation, because that's Mm. one of the biggest barriers to getting innovations to practice. You have this great idea, but it doesn't align with the current payment model. For example, you want to create a population management dashboard for GPs. That makes perfect sense. It's being done all around the world. You want to really put your resources into the patients that have the most risk and help them rather than, you know, just serving everyone on a first come first serve basis, whoever comes to your surgery or clinic. Mm. But GPs don't have a payment model to look at a population of patients and manage them. They're on a fee-for-service basis, and so it's just what they do with an individual patient. And so it's really hard to get the great innovations that are being implemented across the world into practice in Australia because those payment models don't align. And there's multiple examples all around the world of payment models being the biggest barrier or enabler. Yeah. I'm interested too, because, you know, we're talking about, you know, some of these structural things that need to be done right to be able to effectively take an innovation and essentially bring it to market. A lot of the times you see this kind of stuff coming out of commercial accelerators or programs to help organizations from a commercial perspective, but coming out of the university, tell me a bit more about the drivers of this work that you're doing from the uni. Yeah. So a lot of great innovations are happening in industry. But when you talk to industry partners, they have a very difficult time figuring out how to really get their foot in the door into the healthcare system. And one of the big barriers is that the data that they're generating from their apps or their decision support systems, it requires interaction with the electronic medical record. And right now, it's not clear for them how to really make that happen. Now, we know that there are standards to support that. And that the major vendors across the world, including Apple and Google, are now using HL7 Fire as that data exchange standard. But to work with a health service and integrate with their EMR is critical because if it doesn't integrate with their EMR, it's not going to get used. And it feels impossible from the outside. So we've developed what we're calling the Validatron Sandbox. And this is a simulated digital ecosystem where it has a bunch of simulated tools. So it has a simulated version of Epic. It has different devices like pulse oximeters. It has a telehealth client. And they're like Lego blocks that you can now drag and spin out an environment that represents the environment that you're trying to build. And so now in a simulated way, you can work with the IT people in the hospital, for example, and with you know your company and researchers to help develop those information flows create the workflows, and now test with real patients and clinicians to make sure that it's usable and you know validate all of the components. And then we're building a physical space in the new Melbourne Connect building, which has a patient living room, it has a GP office and a hospital room and one-way mirrors so that you can really test out the physical workflows as well wow. and really try to do the research before you put it into practice and then realize all the problems that you didn't know what happened because yeah. you weren't prepared. So it's, it's de-risking yeah. and also 
you know, increasing the likelihood of adoption. Yeah, it's totally different to what, you know, I guess from outside of the healthcare industry, you look at quality assurance testing or, you know, like testing an app. It's like to see whether links break and stuff like that. Whereas this is next level. If you've got, did you mention like a physical, like real kind of place where you can watch the workflow happen in, in real life? Yeah. So it's like an immersive environment and you can have patients or actors pretending to be patients go through scenarios wow. and you can test them out. Crazy cool. Hey, before as well, you said that dirty S word that we hear from time to time, which is standards and how that kind of plays in as that, you know, important part. On one hand, when you think about innovation and healthcare and standards almost become like this innovation in the face of standards or, you know, despite of standards, whereas other people look at standards having a really important role to play. Like you mentioned before, though, it's kind of something that you need that ticket to play in order to integrate with EMRs. You've got to align with standards, right? Like what role do standards play when it comes to innovation in healthcare? I think that standards are the linchpin for innovation in healthcare. They're the reason we haven't been able to innovate as quickly in healthcare because the information that you build in your application or your decision support system can't integrate into the workflow, can't integrate with the EMR, then it's not used. And at the same time, it's the great enabler if you can create that interoperability because you need to exchange the information in a simple way. It needs to be rapid and it needs to be efficient. And so I see standards as kind of the foundation of innovation in healthcare. It's like sewage for public health. <laughs> You know, once they created sewers, it did so much for public health. And then when we see in the pandemic, the different types of infrastructure that are needed now to support public health, and we're all much more familiar with public health infrastructure, but standards are the future public health infrastructure that's needed to really allow this information to flow from the many different sources that it's coming from, whether it's patients or apps or companies or health services or government to really be able to integrate and really serve the patient. In my mind, I've just got all of these kind of like building on the analogy of standards being the sewerage of public health and then, you know, getting deep within it. And, you know, if you don't have it, then what happens then? But let's let everyone kind of use their imagination. I think that's an awesome analogy. I think that works so well, though. It's so important. I don't I think, think that HL7 is going to adopt it as their motto. <laughs> Well, maybe they should. Maybe they should. <laughs> um, hey, look, another really important part, you know, which I think you touched on too with that kind of immersive environment and the importance of seeing it in practice and not just in the clinical environment, but also from a patient's perspective as well, the role of being patient-centered when you're creating some of these healthcare experiences. If you're thinking about creating a, like say, a patient-partnered healthcare experience, what are some things to think about to get a little bit closer there? Yeah. So first of all, I think it's really important to acknowledge that everyone wants to be patient-centered and it's in every health services strategic plan and vision and mission. But if you look closely, it's just a mirage. I mean, even in a very shallow way, if you look at the hours that they're open or there's just so many ways that it's all built around clinicians and government here. So yeah. if we really want to become more patient-partnered, first of all, we have to provide access to data. Patients need to own and control their data. And we see that happening internationally and all the fears that people have of people having access to their data, causing too many questions or too much stress is proving to not be true. But still here in Australia, my husband, who is a informaticist as well as a four-time cancer survivor, you know, has had a devil of a time 
getting access to his data here, but is still able to access data from the last 15 years that he's had a patient portal in the U.S. and bring that to the table to all of his specialist visits and GP visits. And so he collects all of his data and people need access to that. But beyond that, just having data is the first step. We need to support them in knowledge. We need to help them interpret their data, interpret the notes that they'll be reading, the lab values that they have, be able to bring information to them in a way that helps them become partners in making decisions. And we need to provide guidelines. You know, there are all kinds of clinical guidelines for diabetes and high blood pressure and all kinds of information to guide clinicians about the right steps, but there aren't guidelines to match those for the patients. You know, you're a diabetes patient. Here are the clinical guidelines and here's what it means for you. And and here's the decision support to guide you. So we need to support patients with knowledge. And then finally, we need to be taking what the patients say and what they care about. And that needs to be driving the visit. It needs to be part of the medical record. Patients want to tell their story once. They don't want to have to keep repeating it and be the source of all the information. They want that to be accessible to the clinicians and be part of what drives the conversation. Yeah, I often think with this, and you're so right. And I think about this conversation too around this point of what patients want with data as well. And from my own experience, the concerns that people in healthcare have sometimes about giving patients more access to data. Normally the concern comes around, well, what are they going to do with this data? They're going to try and fix themselves or give themselves healthcare and do exactly the same thing that a clinician wants to do with the data. But from a patient's perspective, that's not often what they want to do. They want to get back to work or they want to just go to their next appointment or just continue a lot of logistical things. And a lot of the logistical things need data. And, you know, like you said, as a patient, you don't want to have to explain the same thing each time you get passed over to a new clinician, or you want the ability to be able to add to the story as it goes and not have to then go back and update everyone, have a dynamic kind of thing going on. And so you're right, we don't, without that data being accessible, none of that is achievable. That's right. And they want to be partners Mm. in general, want clinicians to be helping them and guiding them, but they know something clinicians don't, and they want that to be on the table. Yeah. Amazing. Hey, look, so starting to close out this conversation, then thinking back from an innovator's perspective, if it piqued their interest in terms of some of the stuff you were talking about with the university and the work you're doing there, how can people learn more about what's happening with the Validatron and how they get involved? Yeah. So if you go to our website, just search for Center for Digital Transformation of Health, University of Melbourne. And we have a website that has some information about the things that we're working on. In addition to the Validatron, We also have a a mission for education and workforce development. And so we've developed some short courses and workshops and have something called the Learning Health System Academy, where we're working with working clinicians for a year on projects that are sponsored by their health services. And we have a short course on applied learning healthcare systems that is going to be launched again in May and September and is proving quite popular and useful. And so we're, we're really trying to reach out and because one of the big barriers to the innovation being adopted is the workforce. And that's what we hear from the CEOs of the hospitals as we talk with them. They don't have the people with the knowledge to make this happen. And there's so many different types of knowledge that we need to have. Like we said, it's so multidisciplinary from the data to implementation science, to statistics, to human behavior and sociology, technology, 
nobody has all that knowledge on their own. So really increasing that knowledge in the broad workforce is really important. Yes, 100% agree. And I'm glad to see that that's part of the agenda to workforce enablement when it comes to digital health. Such an important issue. And it's good to see some great bodies working towards that. We'll have to get you on the podcast to talk about that in and of itself, because it's a great topic too. But we're going to have to leave it there, Wendy. I really appreciate you making the time. We'll put all the details for the center within the show notes of this episode. So people can just click on that if they want to learn more. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.